Astonishing Legends would like to thank Com, Squarespace, Harry's, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. In late March of 1974, the Betts family of Fort George Island, 30 minutes northeast of Jacksonville, Florida, got word that a small brush fire had been extinguished on some land they had a short drive away. At 49 feet above sea level, their stately home on the island was on the highest Atlantic coastal point south of Sandy Hook, New Jersey. The family piled into their car to investigate the blaze and make sure it was not a more significant threat than it seemed. In the course of taking care of it, Terry, the 21-year-old son of Antoine and Jerry Betts, noticed a strange object in the grass near the burnt area. It looked like some kind of large steel ball. Upon closer examination, he realized that was precisely what it was. Its purpose, however, he could not readily determine. His parents were intrigued by it at first, but stories say they didn't think much more about it at the time. Terry, however, was apparently intrigued with it, and he decided that he wanted to bring the strange steel ball home. It was just under eight inches in diameter, and he was likely shocked when he went to pick it up and found that it weighed over 20 pounds. He took it to the car, and they returned to their house. Terry took it up to his room, where it sat for a few days, until he was playing his electric guitar for a visiting friend, and the strange steel ball began to vibrate like a tuning fork and resonate with the music he was playing. As he continued, a peculiar throbbing sound came from the sphere when he played specific notes. Was this nothing more than a harmonic vibration? Or was it something else? It turns out it was only the beginning of a long chain of events that would change the Betts family's lives forever and make international news. The strange steel sphere did more than just resonate with Terry's music. It seemed to demonstrate sentience and an ability to navigate around their house. Before it would all be over, the United States Navy, Marine Corps, and even the famous Dr. J. Allen Hynek of the United States Air Force's Project Blue Book and the creator of the Hynek Close Encounter Scale would personally examine what would become known as the Betts Sphere. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. They told me to put the orb on the floor and give it a push. It rolled a ways and stopped. Then it turned by itself and rolled about four feet. It stopped. Then it turned again and rolled to the left about eight feet, made a big arc, and came right back to my feet. Lou Egner, photographer for the Jacksonville Journal. Join us tonight for part one of our three-part series on the Beth Sphere. Hey, everybody. Welcome to 2019. We can't believe you came back. Uh, you can't believe I came back, most of all, <laughs> <laughs> because I was uh, enjoying my time away. I love all of you folks, of course, love doing the show, but man, it was nice being off. It was it? nice yeah. taking a little break. And I always feel weird since I manage, you know, our Twitter and stuff. Tess really helps out with a lot of our social media, but I'm kind of the primary on Twitter. Mm -hmm. When I get off of there, I it's a nice break, but then I, I feel like I'm neglecting people. So <laughs> well, they're still, they're still <laughs> have comments and asking questions. So yes. you want to interact and I, that's an easy part. But the research really, I mean, we love to learn about this kind of stuff. 
but it's also nice to turn your brain off and just watch pablum you know just yes. a bunch of netflix movies and whatever <laughs> just you know and uh, not have to think about stuff so that was great but we're so glad you're back here for us to do this yes and we are lining up our topics for the year now we're gonna get that all organized in the next few weeks and now that we're four years in we're finally gonna try and get a little bit ahead with our show production <laughs> well just maybe another day or two before <laughs> we actually produce the show for that week is yeah pick the topic yeah yeah, yeah. we're getting there hopefully and it, allow us to uh make the episodes better and also give our post-production team a chance to get their lives back. And uh, another thing we wanted to say is at the beginning of the year here, please, please, please remember to support our sponsors. We really appreciate it when you do that. They are what keeps our show free. And when you do support them, go out of your way to use the special promo codes and the URLs we provide so they'll know we sent you. Because once they know we sent you, that's when they come back and they sponsor us again. And the more they sponsor us, the longer we get to keep doing this show and the longer it stays free for everybody. So we really appreciate the support that you guys have already done. Because yeah, you, you guys. It shows because oh. the sponsors are coming back, which means it's working. No, that's the only way we know, frankly, is that uh, when they keep coming back. Yeah, because they don't tell us, by the way. <laughs> Here's the newsflash. No. They won't tell you how good you're doing because yeah. then if they tell you, they think you're going to raise rates. So they don't yeah. tell you anything. Well, they just, the... <laughs> the way you know is they say, hey, we'll buy another commercial. Yeah. yeah so And they come back again. But the fact that a lot of our sponsors have done that shows us that you folks out there have really supported us in that way and gotten yourself some great stuff. We try everything we endorse because we have to and we want to, and we really do love it. And we think you will too, or you will know somebody who will. So get yourself something uh, you think you, you could use or someone else that you care about could use. And we're pretty sure you won't be disappointed. But again, thank you so much for your support. That and you lovely Patreon supporters, it all comes together and makes this thing work for all of us. With that said, there is one more announcement we'd like to make before we get to tonight's show, and that is regarding our head of research, Tess Feifel, who's been with us three years now and was wanting to take on a little more work, and it turns out we need help. So mm. Tess Feifel, who is still our head of research, is now actually a producer on the show and is going to be yeah. taking on more tasks to help us behind the scenes and stay organized which God knows we need. Tess, we just wanted to thank you so much for all of your hard work and smoothing out the mess we make every week. <laughs> Frankly, we're surprised she keeps coming back. Yes. As well as Sarah and Ryan and everybody that's come in contact with us. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> After uh, dealing with us and our sloppiness. But no, thank you so much. They are what makes the show even better than we could possibly imagine and do ourselves. Uh, yes. All right. Let's get to tonight's show. This is a story that's been covered by a lot of people, pretty much everyone in our genre at some point has touched on this. Although I can say when you first brought this up to me a couple of years ago and you were like, we got to do a show on the, yeah. on the best sphere. And I was like, what? I had never heard of it. And <laughs> well, there's a reason for that because although it was big at the time, regionally, locally, and internationally, it hit the news. It has been kind of forgotten about since that time. And that's another interesting aspect of this story is that even though it made the news and it was kind of like, what is this thing? We've got to know it was forgotten about for such a long time. So yeah, a lot of people have covered it, but not in a great detail as with many of our other paranormal topics. For me, it was a classic, and this is one of those <laughs> folks for, <laughs> for you guys that wonder what it's like when Forrest and I are trying to find a new topic to talk about. It was a classic one of those things where you said to me, well, we should talk about the bed sphere. Again, this was a couple years ago, and I was like, okay, what's that? And you were like, well, this guy found this ball in the woods. And I was like, are you 
kidding me? There cannot be a story there. And, and yeah, you, you were like, well, no, it moved around by itself. I'm like, yeah, my son has a toy that does that. Well, that's going to come up too. <laughs> but it turns out to be like everything else. Once you peel back the layers, it turns out to be a really fascinating story. Look, you know, people have written to us saying, hey, you guys didn't solve this. What's the big deal? Seriously, a couple of people were upset that we didn't solve a few mysteries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's, and that's not the point, really. It's like, we want to know more about it. Like you, we heard of these topics and we know a little bit about it, but we want to get to the bottom of it as much as we can in the time frame that we can, which is greatly stretched out a lot of time. But we can't say that we'll solve it, but we'll find out as much as we can that's out there and available and make our own conclusions. And that's all we can do. But like this, and there's a couple of topics we're going to cover this year where I specifically pointedly want to cover them because of something that Scott says often about these topics the first time i think being shadow people where you're yeah. you're very dismissive and it's like i think that's just something that happens when you take too much dramamine yeah. <laughs> no no it's not it's... well I'm, I'm in a bit of a different frame of mind these days i know so, yes but, no, that's good but it is funny though because sometimes you will pitch something and i'll be like this sounds really mundane <laughs> Uh, But hey, and to that end, we should talk a little bit about, like I said, a lot of people have covered this, but one of the people that wrote a really comprehensive article about it that was a jumping off point for our research was our friend Rob Morphy over at the Kryptonaut Podcast. And he had done a blog entry. He sometimes freelance contributes to other sites and blogs about this kind of stuff. And he'd done a blog entry for Mysterious Universe, which is the Australian sort of version of us. I I don't know if they want to be compared to us. Apologies. (laughs) But it's a show with a couple guys who talk about all kinds of stuff and it's a pretty fascinating show we yeah we've, it's one that i've actually listened to a few times they kind of have a variation of our astonishing research core arc yeah they have an amazing brain trust of researchers and contributors and real authors yes. and uh, magazine journalists and uh, guys like nick redfern and micah hanks doing blog entries and articles and research for them and so that was an article and actually one of the best that we've found on this topic very exhaustive and uh, covers all the bullet points on it so we took a lot of inspiration from it yeah and we've actually mentioned rob on the show before and i'll tell yes. you why because he's actually a very talented illustrator And back when we covered David Davies and the whole UFO flap, the Welsh UFO flap, he graciously allowed us to use one of his sketches of one of the aliens that appeared in another sighting for a bunch of school children in Zimbabwe Yeah, uh, yeah. called the Aerial School Sighting. And uh, those aliens distinctly looked like a cross between a Gray and Alice Cooper. (laughs) And he did a really cool sketch of those, and he let us use it on the show. So we've been talking to him back and forth since then, and we said, hey, Rob, we wanted to cite your blog entry over at Mysterious Universe as one of our sources for the Beth's Fear story we're about to do. And he said, oh, yeah, definitely, absolutely. So we did win, and we wanted to give him a shout-out. We wanted to tell you that you can find him and his buddies on the Cryptonaut podcast. He's also a contributing author over at the blog Cryptopia.us. So that's a C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A dot U-S. So you can find more of his uh, current writings over there as well. You can go to his own site, Rob Morphy. Rob Morphy dot com. R-O-B-M-O-R-P-H-Y dot com. I think he illustrates for the TV show Monsters and Mysteries in America. And I don't, this is from the byline from the article we're reading from, which came out in 2012, April 21st of 2012. The the Mysterious Universe article, if anybody wants to check it out, is called The Bet's Mystery Sphere, Alien Artifact or Doomsday Device. And that was published (laughs) at Mysterious Universe on April 21st, 2012. Yeah, that'll give you a little uh, insight into uh, how mysterious this thing is. Wide ranging piece of junk or something that might end the world. 
Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the sphere itself and its discovery and how it was first stumbled across. You heard a little bit about that in the cold open, but let's get more specific with that. Well, here's the first interesting thing, which should be the simplest and easy to find out. And it'll often tell you the challenges, but also kind of the fun parts of researching something like this, which is not that old. Okay. We're talking about 1974 here. And, uh, you know, we're not talking about 1850s journalism, you know, where it's like a little suspect. We're now in the modern era of news reporting and journalism and recording. And a lot of us, believe it or not, grew up in that era. That was our heyday of all kinds of wonderful things coming out into the public purview here, which sparked our love of this kind of stuff. And so my point is, there are a few dates for when this object was actually found. So you'll hear some different dates of discovery, ranging from March 26th, 1974, Wednesday, March 27th, 1974, April 9th, 1974, or May 26th, 1974. So just pick one. It's not entirely important, but as you'll see, those dates will get firmed up because the family that found it, the Betts family, B-E-T-Z, they were interviewed by the local paper, and they reached out to the media themselves, and uh, TV journalists showed up, they were recorded, there's pictures of it. Not a ton, but it was documented, so it's not like something that somebody heard, it's hearsay, and then there's no hard proof of it. Yeah, and also, just with regard to the dates, whether it was late March or April or even May in some cases, we're betting on late March because of a couple of reasons. One of them is that all of the journalism that Forrest was just right. talking about all was published in April, yeah, early, mid-April, and also then late April, and as were some of the other reports that you'll hear about. Additionally, there was evidence that after the sphere was brought home, there's some mentions that it sat around for a week or two in Terry's room. But let's talk about the circumstances under which they found it before we go any right. further here. One note I do want to say, though, about the date of discovery that is important and, and why it kind of does matter in the story is that all of this stuff, all the weird stuff that happened with this ball happened in a short period of time from yes. the discovery to kind of the experimenting on it. And then it went away in a short period of time. And then it's been a very long period of time since the mid-70s until now, and its mysterious uh, disappearance in a way. There's a lot of activity and then a lot of not activity, if you know what I'm saying. So that's what's interesting about this. It's, it's very eloquent. Like, yeah, it, it didn't like that? <laughs> Me talk pretty today. <laughs> the idea, though, is that it's not been around and now it's kept in a museum and people still wonder about it. It's like it popped up on the radar nationally, regionally, globally in a short amount of time and then just went away. People kind of forgot about it, as we were talking about at the top of the show. Here. Yeah, and so, it still yeah. internet has an international footprint. I mean, if you go to Google it right now, it will come up in multiple language websites. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So no, no, it's, no. A, it was, it's yeah. a notorious, or I should say an infamous object. So let's talk a little bit about the actual circumstances under which they found it. Yeah, so how did it get discovered? Well, it was Terry Betts, and he's the 21-year-old pre-med student and son of Antoine and Jerry Betts, who was kind of the first one to discover the sphere. The family had recently acquired an 88-acre tract of land, and there was a brush fire on it, and they were going out to inspect it uh, to see what kind of damage there was. And during this inspection, it was Terry Betts who first discovered the sphere lying in the grass in an unburnt patch by itself, just sitting there. Right. After they had dealt with the fire, which we couldn't find anything that indicated if they had an awareness of how the fire started. 
but we also want to make it clear that the sphere did not seem to be connected to the fire, even though it was near the fire area. It was not in a burnt area. It was not hot to the touch. It did not appear burnt visually either. Right. We don't know, though, if it did not start the fire. That is part of the lore of this. Right. Uh, because it's such a weird thing. So, so this area is very dense, very marshy. It's in the northeastern corner of the state of Florida. Yes. And the area is called Fort George Island. And within that, it contains the Fort George Island State Cultural Site. That's got its own fascinating and mysterious history. But it is a Florida state park. It's about 23 miles by car east of Jacksonville, Florida. So I'm going to give you an idea where it is. But this area here is, even though it's marshy around there, this area is mostly dry. There are good yeah, patches. Yeah, this is up on a hill. This is on what they call Mount Cornelia. It's an altitude of 49 feet. And at that altitude, it is the highest point on the eastern seaboard south of Sandy Hook, New Jersey. So yeah. 49 feet, obviously not all that high. It's a five-story building, but, <laughs> yeah, but for being coast. down on the coast, yeah, it's exactly. pretty high up. And yeah. even though the island itself has a lot of marshy land, this is a high point that is not necessarily marshy. Yeah, it's a cool place to have a house because you've got a commanding view of the uh, surrounding area. So that's one thing they loved about the Betzes. That's one thing they loved about their house there is that on their terrace or whatever, they had a great view of just a lot of trees. And yeah, well, they also the house has a tower where uh, Jerry Betts, the mother of the family, said she loved to go up and, yeah. and look out. The view must have been absolutely amazing. And yeah. even today, we were checking it out because we always like to look at the area on Google Earth and on real estate and all that. There's some amazing houses all around there. Oh, yeah. This one, not in great shape. Uh, <laughs> it's been abandoned, but you can find it on Google Earth. It's pretty... uh, no, but it was designed to kind of look like a castle. So yes. sometimes people in the area describe it as the Betts Castle. Mm -hmm. It had a lot of stone brick, but it's kind of a cool edifice. They have this 88-acre tract of land, as Forrest said. The fire brings them out to see what's going on, and that's when Terry specifically sees the sphere over in the grass. Yeah, right? there was nothing unusual that the fire did, really. I mean, other than it just burnt some shrubbery, except for this shiny metal ball. And it was about eight inches in diameter. It's often described as being bowling ball size. So that should give you a, a, kind of a, a clue as to the shape. But there's nothing too unusual about it other than it's just sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And Jerry Betts, the mom, had described uh, there being no indentation. So it wasn't like it was halfway embedded in the dirt, like it had fallen from an airplane or from a great height or any height, really. It was just kind of sitting in the grass by itself and uh, really no marks on it. It was kind of, uh, had a few scratches on it, I believe. Or, or well, yeah, it, time, it was described as, at one point was polished, but it, it, that it might have been rolled over concrete yes. and gotten scratches It from does that. like to roll, yes. as we'll hear, yeah. <laughs> by itself. But it wasn't anything so obviously strange. It wasn't totally chromed. So it just struck him as unusual. I mean, this thing's about 22 pounds, they initially discovered. The only mark on it, though, that seemed to be unusual, other than a few scratches, was a elongated triangle, about three millimeters long. So a little tiny mark on it, which seemed like it could have been stamped or carved into it, but that's really the only... And even that's debatable. It's debatable yeah. that that was just a chunk that was damaged. Yeah, it could have yeah. been damage. It could have been an, an intentional stamp on it somehow, but there's no markings, no industrial printing on it, you know, to tell you what it is or any kind of nomenclature on it. That's it. It's just a steel ball out in the middle of nowhere. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the Betts family. Who were these people? Are they hucksters? Are they just, a lot of people say like, well, they're swampland hillbillies and they're out to make a buck. They were not. The Betts family was known to the community as respectable and financially secure, successful. The three family members at the time who made the discovery, as we said, was the mother, Jerry Betts, G-E-R-R-I, dad, Antoine, and he was a marine engineer. Smart guy. Yes. Uh, scientific background, actually. Think of Scotty on Star Trek <laughs> on the Enterprise. <laughs> and Terry, Matthew Betts. And at the time, as we said, he was a 21-year-old pre-med student, so also kind of scientifically minded, smart kid. And the family had six children in total, but the story really focuses on these three family members. But these are smart, responsible, successful people. Jerry, the mother, she had a really interesting life. She was a really successful entrepreneur in real estate development and somehow acquired a refrigerated trucking line. Yeah, well, see, supposedly she took over the payments for a truck that was in default. And then before it was all over, she wound up with the whole company. Yeah, that's <laughs> that right. Which is pretty amazing. No, here's she what, was really ahead of her time, oh, honestly. Yeah, no, and here's yeah. what I really respect is that she wanted to know how these trucks operated so she could repair them and help diagnose. Yeah, uh, she learned how the truck worked yeah. and then on top of that it's funny she looked kind of like a net funicello yeah yeah attractive lady like yeah really yeah. amazing picture of her when you go to research the bet sphere online where she's uh like climbing into a, a tractor trailer yeah with gloves yeah. on and she's ready to either drive it or, or fix it but yeah no she's pretty just, awesome she was interested in running for political office at one point locally we'll find out a little bit more about that later but yeah these are people who are not local ne'er-do-wells out to turn a quick buck and i want to say that because a lot of people think like well there you go they're hucksters out to uh, yeah, they were not promote in, something. They were not in need. No, they were uh, a prominent she, family of the area. And Jerry also wound up being uh, really successful in real estate over the course of her life as well. So right. uh, that paints a little bit of a picture. There were more siblings. It was a large family. But the ones that you hear talked about with regard to the sphere most of the time is really Terry, the 21-year-old son. And then sometimes you'll hear mentioned his younger brother, Wayne, who was right. 12 at the time. Yeah, he appears in some photos with the orb. But Jerry, the mother, she's really the spokesperson for the family and dealing with the news media and the interviews and taking it places. And, and Terry was the one, though, he was kind of in charge of, I guess, physically handling the ball. Hi, I'm Anna, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. All right, so uh, we should probably get to the point why anyone would want to talk about a metal ball from a field anyway. One, it's interesting, but it's just a ball. <laughs> it is. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's like, you know, if it was by a highway, and these are some of the theories of what it might be. But if it was, you know, in an industrial area, it was in a junkyard, it was by the highway in a ditch, you could say, oh, well, this probably just fell off a truck or something or somebody left it here. But it's out in the middle of nowhere. So that's one weird thing about it. So then you're wondering, well, what did the family think it was at first? Well, one of the first things they thought was that possibly it's a piece of space junk quote unquote, which we've come to term now as a lot of, there's a lot of garbage floating around. I was about to say, I think there's about 400, 500 pieces of junk. I think that's just satellites. Scott looked it up just now. And how much is there? 51 million pieces of debris, smaller than one centimeter as of July, 2013, approximately 670,000 pieces from one to 10 centimeters. The current count of large debris, this is from Wikipedia, credit to Wikipedia, to who were a regular contributor. <laughs> the current right. count of large debris defined as 10 centimeters across or larger 
is 29,000. Well, there you go. We've trashed space. So congratulations. <laughs> we trash everything. You know, animals do it too. So this, this whole area historically had mounds of oyster shells because it's been lived in for a very, very long time. So there's some archaeological interest in the area as well. It's kind of a cool and spooky and interesting, uh, the whole area is, and this is just one aspect of it, this big metal ball showing up out of nowhere. But as I was going to say, 1974, there was a lot of news coverage of space with NASA and Soviet space exploration. So they thought like, well, maybe this is some satellite hardware. Because at the time, NASA and its Skylab was a huge news story at the time. And I remember being a kid and that was on our minds. Yes. Uh, it was a big deal. It was still in space. Oh, and yeah, it, yeah. Eventually it fell. <laughs> it did. But that was not that was way after this. Or, right. You know, a few years after yeah, this. Yeah. So, I mean, the definition from uh, Wikipedia is Skylab was a United States space station launched and operated by NASA and occupied for about 24 weeks between May 1973 and February 1974. The only space station the U.S. has operated exclusively in 1979, it fell back to Earth amid huge worldwide media attention. So in 79, in 79, but it, like I said, it uh, was occupied up till 74. So it was in the news a lot. And naturally, that's what we're thinking. It looks maybe space age like uh, in its appearance. Right. Maybe it's a, a piece of something like that. Well, the other thing that logically fit is if it was space junk, they were wondering, did this thing heat up upon reentry? And maybe the sphere caused the wildfire on their property. You know, But again, it was not in a burnt area. It was not in a burnt area. And there was no heat markings. There was no scorching on this thing. Did not appear. It was not hot to the touch, obviously. It wasn't sitting on a, a bed of coals. There was no apparent outward markings on it or indication that it had anything to do with the fire. Well, and here's one thing I would also like to point out, having not researched this at all before yeah. I say it. So Please, um, why, why let start the, now? Let the emails fly. Yeah. It seems to me that a wildfire near the beach in Florida would be a harder thing to start yeah. than it would be in the desert or yeah, in a drier very, region. Very, very humid, wood. very humid area. Yes. Surrounded by swamp, barring a lightning strike, you know, into some dry brush. Yeah. It does seem like it might be an unusual occurrence. Well, I, let the park rangers email me. But um, <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, aside from that fact, no matter how hard it is to start a fire, it's a very weird fire. There's really nothing that we could find initially here. It was a brush fire. Yeah, yeah so. that, that, of, of the cause of it, it seemed to be natural. Unless this thing caused it, then that's the most unnatural thing ever. But that is still one of the speculative ideas about the fire is that somehow the ball was connected because it just popped up in connection with this fire. So I, I guess like in uh, Kelly Hopkinsville, remember there was a, a weird sighting of possibly something flying over and then you had goblins. Yeah. But you can't necessarily connect them, but it, they seem connected maybe somehow. Well, anyway, they thought then maybe if it's not space junk, maybe it's an old cannonball that somebody had uh, silver plated as a souvenir or it was something decorative that somebody had coded. Did you it, say space ball? I did say space ball. Well, that was, sure was it space that. balls? That, that was, was the movie. The movie, yes. Yeah. No, no. Singular space ball. Okay. It's if it wasn't ball. a piece of junk that, that fell off uh, <laughs> that fell off a space station or something having to do with a launch or a satellite bit, then obviously maybe it's just a common thing that somebody dumped here for whatever reason. Again, it's not by the side of the road. You'd have to really get in there into this property because it is yeah, a bit of a trek. If it wasn't right by the road, and we may try to determine that at some point, we've been unable to determine so far where exactly the fire was, but... If it wasn't right by the road, then that means it was either manually deposited by someone hiking on private property. Yeah. 
Or it came from somewhere else. Yeah. Like the sky or whatever. Right. So it's not like we're in a junkyard or near a manufacturing facility or anything like that that would be close by. However, we do have to mention the Jacksonville Naval Air Station right. is in the area. Mm-hmm. So there are overflights of True. military aircraft right. and that sort of thing. That's something to consider. And when we get to our more of our explanations and analysis, we'll address that more closely. Yeah. But, but that it, would be, for me, at the outset of this, in terms of the mundane, right. that is the most viable origin for me looking at the big picture right now as we're leading yeah, into this Yeah, well, story. obviously, there's your, people love it. They love the Occam's razor. There's your yeah. Occam's razor explanation that it just fell off of a being carried somewhere. That is also one claim that people have put forth that it fell off a vehicle or it fell off a military aircraft. But then again, this thing was not damaged. It was just sitting on top of the ground on soft soil. It wasn't like it embedded itself had it been dropped from, you know, a thousand feet or more. And, you know, there was no crater that it bounced out or something like that. So it wasn't like hard desert surface or something paved where this thing would have bounced or made a crack or anything. It was just kind of sitting on top of the grass. That's another weird thing about it. And there was no rolling marks as far as we could tell her that were mentioned. Didn't right. Roll from somewhere else. Right. Okay, so that's a weird thing. But you know, Terry, he's 21. This thing's pretty cool. So Terry decides like, hey, let's take this home. I'm going to put it in the family car. And that's what they did. He, oh, takes right. it, he takes it home and he, he shows it to his little brother, Wayne, who's 12 at the time. And they find it really cool, but it's just a weird thing. The other thing I want to point out, you talked about it being like a bowling ball, the size of a bowling ball. Uh, roughly. Yes, but it would be twice as heavy. Because uh, yes. no, no, most no, bowling but, balls, you 9, 11, 13 pounds or whatever. You do yeah. have ones that are heavy like that. There but. are standards, yes. But a bowling ball, is, I think, has to be eight and a half inches in diameter and can be a little bit more than that. But, of course, you have a machinery it has to go through. Also, there's different weights depending on how is a child or an adult throwing the ball. So there are standards to it. But generally, that's about the same size and shape. It's round. So <laughs> anyway, Terry decides... <laughs> Well, this is pretty cool. I'm just going to hang on to this thing. You know, it, it seems pretty innocuous. Again, there's no stamps on it saying it, please return property of U.S. government on it. So he puts it on a window seat in his bedroom and he keeps it there. Yeah, I'm gathering this as like a bay window that has one of those benches in it yeah, or something. It's a very so classically he's, styled house. And when I read that, I was like, this is really a lot like an opening scene in a Spielberg movie. Like, or, you know, <laughs> E.T. or something. You got this bay window. With, yeah. Hey, what's this weird sphere we found in the woods? Yeah. Oh, it's kind of neat. I'm going to bring it home. Okay, I'm bored with it. I'm put it over here and uh, just go back to my life and, and then kind of yeah. forget about it a little bit. In the movie, there would be a slow zoom in or push in on a dolly yes. uh, coming up cl- to a close-up of the sphere and it doing something weird or something sticks out of it. Well, in a true life story, this is about as weird as it gets, as we know or know of. After that point, then strange things start to happen. Now, the first thing that we know of, reported by the family, is that Terry's in his bedroom with his friend, Teresa Frazier, and he decides he's going to play the guitar for her, the little impromptu recital. And and that's kind of how it's described, is when this mysterious sphere acts as though it got woke, as the kids say. It came to life. Terry's quote is that the ball began to vibrate like a tuning fork, unquote, as soon as he started playing. And he also said that a strange throbbing sound came from it when he played certain notes. So as we know from uh, our inklings and studies here that vibration, frequency, harmony has a lot to do with our universe. String theory, 
all these things tie in. So, well, that makes sense that maybe that has some kind of effect on it. A little funny aside, I'd read that Terry may have been playing the electric guitar. While I wonder if the type of guitar playing would make a difference, you know, whether it was electric or acoustic, the pictures of Terry at 21 years old did make me think of Donald Buckadharma Roser, the lead guitarist of Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, he's yes. Got that, he's got that cool 70s hair, rock and roll hair, a mustache, and like cool 70s glasses. Yeah, it's just that's hilarious. Of, anyway, yeah, I just... Uh, oh, just keep in head. mind, we're just about 400 miles north of the Coral Castle, which <sighs> some people think was built using tuning forks. <laughs> well, well, yeah, tuning forks and, and a lot of leverage and chains. That's interesting. That was not in our notes here. You just brought that up, but... Ed Lee Scowlin firmly believed that there was something about the area that he built the castle of that helped him do that. There was a magical property, if you want to call them ley lines, if you want to call them Earth's magnetic natural grid, there's something there in that area. And one of the, the theories about the Coral Castle is that why he picked it up and moved it. I think from Homestead, I can't remember. Yeah, he ago. relocated like 10 it. miles down the road yeah. because things had changed. Yeah, it wasn't quite in the right location anymore. Right, right. right. <laughs> That's another weird little thing. A five-foot-six man just, you know, with the help of one flatbed truck moved the whole thing, mostly by himself. So uh, it's interesting, but maybe this area has also something to do with that because magnetism is a big property of this ball, as we'll see. Another strange thing, talking about frequency, is that the family described the sphere possibly making a high-pitched frequency sound that they couldn't hear or humans could hear, but their dog, a toy poodle, seemed to be able to hear it, and it bothered her, disturbed her. Yeah, they described this as being in the range of around, what they thought was in the range of about 15,000 hertz. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, and I wonder, I'd have to hear 15,000 hertz, and maybe Ryan... I don't think you could, could you? Well, maybe Ryan can reproduce it for us, but I guess, um, and if so, do it right here. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll see. If that nice. was just a long silence, that means he couldn't hear it. <laughs> right. But uh, I remember right. when I was younger, and I think I mentioned this once on a very old show, maybe yeah. when we were first starting out, but when I was a kid, I used to be when I was in the mall with my mom, mm -hmm. and I would enter a big store, one of the big stores, like a, a Sears yeah. or Macy's or whatever that's in a mall. When I passed through the door, I would hear a high-pitched sound that was, I think, eventually described to me as being part of an alarm system or something. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very, very high-pitched. But as I got older, it got harder and harder to hear. And of course, now malls are all dead. But right. I got, it got to a point where either they replaced that. But I remember it was yeah. really high. Yeah. Some people yeah. are, are able to hear that, uh, as we've discussed with uh, EVPs. Some people can hear stuff. Some and, people yeah. can't. And I don't know, you that know. sounds like a completely unrelated anecdote, but I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if that's the kind of sound they were thinking, because it struck me as the kind of sound that would bother a this, dog, but yeah. not a person. Normally. Well, this thing's doing all kinds of weird vibratory types of things, for instance, and here's where it starts to get weird, almost maybe disturbing. It goes from amusing to slightly disturbing. They say if you rolled the ball on the floor, it would stop on its own, vibrate, and then change direction. It would then return to whomever first pushed it, like it knew you. Kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> On one occasion, they claimed it rolled continuously by itself, not stopping for at least 12 minutes. So if this is true, it's an interesting claim against it just rolling because of like grooves on the floor or something uneven. Now that's been a possible uh, skeptical explanation for this is like, well, you set it down, it's an old floor, it's made out of stone, it's uneven. It's just kind of following the grooves. Well. We've all done that, I think, uh, playing as kids with a ball on a stone floor or tile floor. It eventually stops, right? It finds a point where it finds a groove and it just stops, but doesn't keep changing weird directions and doesn't come back to you, if you believe them. 
Well, so far, it sounds like a great Christmas gift idea. Yes. Because <laughs> there are toys out there like that. But this is a really interesting thing that's doing. Look, we all have experienced common everyday physics, rolling balls, different things that are around the house, how things fall and roll around. Well, this is enough to get their attention that this is not natural. This is unusual. So they start trying to do other quote unquote experiments on it because they are on record. They're going to the media now as explaining the weird things that are happening. In an article from the St. Petersburg Times from Friday, April 12th, 1974, Mrs. Jerry Betts is quoted as saying, you know, it would stop and then return to the person who rolled it. Sometimes it veered one way or another and then it would just sit there and vibrate. So things don't sit there and vibrate unless they're battery operated or powered. Right. That's not supposed to happen. It is a function of frequency. Things can vibrate. In the St. Petersburg Times and uh, the AP and UPI Newswires, they ran with this article too. And this is from April 15th. Jerry Betts said that she had placed the sphere in the middle of a table. We think this is the glass smooth coffee table. So that kind of eliminates the grooves in the floor argument. But this is one of the more famous cases that I think she had demonstrated for the people who visited the house, that without anybody touching it, it began rolling to each of the four sides of the table without falling off. And then it would move to the next edge. And it kept doing this. And it repeated the pattern and made smaller and smaller rectangles. So follow me here as the pattern. It's going to one edge, it stops before it rolls off. It, like it knows where the edge is. Then it goes to the next edge and it stops, stops itself and I think vibrates, and then it goes to the next edge. So it's making this kind of rectangular pattern. Well, it keeps doing this, making smaller and smaller rectangles until finally it comes to rest in the center of the table by itself and stops. Right, so what we've got here is a demonstration of a lot of different things. And what you're describing is essentially a rectangular spiral that it's doing. Yeah, it's, no, it is. It's like it's a search like, pattern. <laughs> that just <laughs> clicked in my head here. Banana River Naval Air Station here. The search pattern for Flight 19. Uh, yeah. For the Martin Marauder, I think that when it went down, that's what you do is you make concentric square pattern radiating out from where you thought happened and you keep going until you hopefully find something. Right. But and that's what it's doing the reverse of that. This ball is starting at the edges of this smooth glass coffee table and finding each edge without there being a lip on it, just finding the edge and knowing where it is, stopping, changing direction, finding the next edge, and then just keeps going. It's like it's scanning the table. Right. And let's talk about that. That implies a couple of things. One is the possibility that it is sentient. The other one is that it is being directed by an outside force that is aware of yes. the circumstances yeah. of the edge of the table, right. somehow observing it from some other place. Well, that's an idea. It's a probe. It's a, uh, a measurement device. But yeah, what level of intelligence does it demonstrate? Because if you stop to think about it, if you're like looking at, you know, a toddler or right. a puppy or whatever, and it well, would they, say- they just fall would, off the edge. Yeah, it would, yeah. initially it would, right. but I'd get to a certain point where it's like, oh, I can't go there. Yeah. I'll go this way. Oh, right. I can't get down here. I can't go there. But that wouldn't explain why it reduces to the middle. Yeah. Other than maybe it's establishing the object because it can't see, but it can sense. Exactly. And if it's doing that, it begs the bigger question again about how it wound up in the woods. Did it roll itself there? <laughs> Possibly. And what is it doing? Is it's it like some a, kind of drone? Yeah, it's is a less it... interesting BB-8. It's finding a spot. But like the droid... When you can't see and you have no other sensors, it tells by rolling. So what this sounded to me like, it's like a pre-programmed program. It's a pre-programmed pattern of scoping things out and coming back 
to a resting spot where it is tracked and now it's collected the data. And it's demonstrating an interest in self-preservation. That is another big thing, as we'll see here in a second, because there's one thing that, as Jerry is quoted as saying, if you pick it up, quote, hold it over your head and shake it vigorously and then put it down, it has a motion inside. There's something inside that's operating this thing. It's not totally hollow. It's not totally solid. That's what Mrs. Betts said. If you put your hands on it, you can feel movement inside. It almost seems like it's trying to get away from you. And she says it actually feels like a huge Mexican jumping bean. What do we, Remember those? What happened to those? <laughs> They're still around. I used to love them when I was a kid. Well, for those of you who don't I still know, don't know how they work. I looked it up. You get a bug in them, right? Or well, what it, what it is, it's actually not a, a bean. It's a seed. For right. those of you that don't know, when I was a kid, if you want to hear the story, you right. would buy these Mexican jumping beans. They would be in a little bag, and you would dump them out, and they would jump all over by themselves. Here's the explanation from uh, Wikipedia. Oh, good. Because we had, these were popular in the 50s. Yes. Uh, but what they are is they are uh, seed pods that have been inhabited by the larva of a small moth, Cydia deschiciana, right? And they're native to Mexico, and it's, it's usually a, a tan-colored or brown bean. And what the jumping is is that when the bean is heated, and you can do that either by putting it in the sun or even the palm of your hand, the warmth of your hand. Yes. Well, that gets the larva inside that is burrowed inside to spasm. And it's an attempt to, there's a connection here, that's why I'm, that's why I'm taking the time to explain this, to roll itself away to a cooler environment, to like get out of the sun so it avoids dehydration and death. So you're torturing it when you're making it jump. No, that's nature. Like it's I said, scared to death. Look, it just yeah. knows like, hey, it's kind of warm here. I think I want to get to a cooler spot because, it, again, holding it in your hand is not going to immediately kill it. Right. It's just that it senses in an effort of self-preservation to want to roll itself. The connection here, and what's interesting that Jerry mentions that, one, she's from that era. They all know what that is, the Mexican jumping bean. But like the ball and what they're describing, it might also be an attempt at self-preservation. Right. To get away from this jerk who's shaking me violently or to get to a better spot or not to fall off from a great height. Yeah, but is that an organic self-preservation or is that what a is program? Is <laughs> well, it a, that's what has it been programmed? Well, you when know, you say to... organically, it's like uh, either the ball has a set of instructions somehow internally that it's just like you said, that's the program. Like, don't do this. Don't fall into a fire. Right. Don't fall off a, a great height. You, you need to collect data. That is your primary uh, function. And so just do these things, and, and when this happens, avoid danger. Yeah. Kind of like the bean. So uh, anyway, that's the, the skinny on the jumping bean. They're not generally eaten, but what happens is that the larva eats away in, on the inside of the bean until it becomes hollow, and then it attaches to the inside of the bean with silk-like thread. And so as it's living inside there, as it gets hot, it kind of tugs on those threads, and that's what causes the, the jumping action. And then eventually a little moth comes out. Right. So that's that. This sphere seems like there's something inside it because, again, that's how we understand these things. This is not the era when things are generally remote controlled. There's no Bluetooth yet. There's no inner control. But Jerry says that it does seem like there's movement inside. There's something inside this thing that's making it move. And she goes on to say, I still don't know what to think about it. We're not afraid of it. We just want to know what it is. Just want to remind everyone, it's 21 pounds, almost 22 pounds. Yeah, so yeah. getting it to move just by the basic principles of physics, that's going to take a lot of work in the classic definition of work equals mass times acceleration. Right. You're having to generate enough work to overcome the inertia of a bowling ball that's twice as heavy as a normal bowling ball and yeah, yeah. change direction. Well, here, here's, we're going to go more in depth about 
the types of things that we think it might be that, that are going on inside. But we've seen toys like this. Scott got one for his son, or somebody did, where that is remote controlled. And yes. I, I, right, is it Bluetooth? You operate it through your phone? Yeah, it was a gift to him uh, for Christmas, I think, last year or his birthday or something. But yeah, you, you get an app right. and you take the little ball and uh, you turn it on and you can use the app to steer it anywhere you want it to go. Yeah. Fast, slow. It'll turn corners, all that kind of stuff. See, that's a new thing because I remember a toy, this is maybe a decade or more ago, where I think you turn it on or something and, and there's something inside that's spinning that's off kilter or off axis and then it does crazy motions. Well, yeah, you there's can get this toys. for like cat toys. Yeah. It's like a ball that has a little feather yeah, there's a tail on the on end it. of it, yeah. a tail. But They love it. They do love it, but that's different. And these toy balls, it's all just gyroscopic action. And that's what would be happening in theory with this. Yeah. It would have to have a, a pretty sophisticated mechanism inside of it. It's got some kind of inertia going on inside that gets it to roll. Right, and it would have to have multiple controllable gyroscopes to have it start, stop, and change direction. Yeah, it's kind so of complicated we, beyond what the primitive toys that we played with that did that kind of thing. Especially in 1974. Right. Uh, my friend Alex and I, a little aside here, there was a there, somewhere in Southern California, uh, you know, at some plaza, there's a giant stainless steel sphere. Now, this thing's like maybe 10 feet across, you know, as a piece of artwork. And we were just thinking, he's one of the guys who's really into cars and knows a lot about them. And we're just wondering, he's like, man, what if you put like a spinning engine? <laughs> like a, a Chevy, yeah. you know, like, like a V8 in there and had some kind of exhaust and just started this thing up and let it go in the plaza. It would roll around, destroy everything. It would act like one of those little balls that are toys, but there's no control over it. It would just go until it banged into stuff, destroying uh, Starbucks storefronts and uh, the sunglasses huts and everything, uh, Wetzel's pretzels, anything in its way, it would destroy. Well, just quickly, yeah. have you ever played Katamari Damacy? The name's familiar, but no. Just an amazing PlayStation 2 game where ah. you collected things by rolling over them and the ball would get bigger and bigger and bigger in the whole goal. Uh. And you were like, you started out tiny in this house, like on the floor. Right. Pretty awesome. <laughs> well, that's, Just saying. Yeah, okay. No, that's, it's worth saying. Yeah. The, the, the idea, though, is that uh, normally that's how you would expect something that maybe even was a, a gag gift or somebody did that as a joke, had some kind of thing that ran on magnetic inertia or something inside that's rolling it around, and this will be fun. They won't know what it is. Or it's a natural thing that just has its own kind of propellant action to it. It does propel itself, it seems. Everybody that sees this comes to that same conclusion. But whether it's intelligent or not, those ideas vary. But it does, to the family, seem like it knows what it's doing in a, at once, sophisticated and remedial way. It's just weird. It shouldn't be doing this. Well, the Betts family knows that they got something special here, at least. So Mrs. Betts, you know, she said she had a policeman stay at the house overnight on the weekend that they found it and announced it to protect the ball from being stolen and is trying to get it insured through Lloyd's of London. And so that's the end of that, that one article. fascinating. Lloyd's yeah. of the, So, yeah, because it's that is something exactly thing. that you would do. Absolutely. <laughs> you would get well, on the internet immediately to see how much uh, you could insure it for. Well, at one point, I, I did have a policy with Lloyd's of London a long time ago, but that's <laughs> was another it story. Was it, was it insuring something weird? It was an old car that my dad had that he ah. uh, later passed on to me, mm. and uh, I still have, but no one would insure it because it had no real street value at the time. I see. Uh, Just so, emotional value. So I did. I had a policy with Lloyd's. I was so excited about that because, you know, they insured like Marilyn Monroe's legs, like yes. whatever. They'll just insure it. They do strange things. Yeah, yes. yeah. But I'm sure not the best rates on your policy. No, but they've been high. around forever. They were of course. maritime insurers. I think we talked about them during we the did. Mary Celeste. We did. I, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And you would think like, why insure a steel ball that rolls around kind of willy-nilly? It seems silly. 
Well, I want to point to one thing right out of the gate. Jerry is a smart lady. She oh, no, no, no. understands she, she, business, oh, yeah. real estate, the trucking company, all that stuff. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know at what phase all those different projects were at this particular mm-hmm. point. But she recognized, I think, an opportunity when she saw it. Whatever this thing was, it was theirs. Right. And she wanted to maintain some kind of control over it. And I think that shows how savvy she was. Oh, no, no. She's got a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit and very business savvy, like you said. And also, to dispel these notions, they were well off. Yes, and they were not in any kind of financial yes, I'm not, trouble. I wasn't implying that she was out for profiteering. Oh, no, 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 no. I, no. Think, I want to dispel those myths because people yeah. will say like, well, that's the first thing people think is like, right. oh, they're trying to make a buck off this thing. Well, obviously she's whipping up media frenzy and trying to ensure this thing. It's like, they didn't need the money. No, she seemed to more have like an almost an obsessive fascination with what the hell is this yeah, thing? Yeah, no, no, they all yeah. did. Yeah, that's yeah. where it was coming from. But also like, yeah, she's no dummy. She's like, hey, this thing is worth a million dollars. Who knows? Back then that was a quite a princely sum. Yes. Let's get it insured. That's her business sense kicking in. Because it wasn't just that. They started to notice it had other really unusual properties to it. Like it seemed to react to weather, or at least the sun in general, because sunlight made it more active. So on bright sunny days, it was more active, almost like it was solar powered, because it seemed to become more active on sunny days than overcast cloudy ones. However, it did not seem to act to direct heat or infrared light. So it wasn't like it was gaining energy just by being near a heat source or somehow absorbing infrared light and that was powering it. But something yeah, to do with sunny days. And yeah, and that's interesting because it was inside the house. So yeah. well near the window. Yeah. But they didn't say specifically when they talked about it right. that it had to be near a window to do oh, its no, number. No, so no. my question is, yeah. was the energy that it's receiving from the sun? Was it maybe something that could penetrate the structure of the house yes, more than just I would, light? I would say from the descriptions is that it, it's not like you had to take it outside and direct sunlight for it to get active. It did a lot of its stuff at night. Right. But on sunnier days, for whatever reason, whatever difference that makes, it just was more active on a sunny day inside the house or outside or wherever. Well, and I guess the other question would be, and maybe it's a, if you believe any of this at all, Mm. maybe it's an assumption to say, oh, well, it's a sunny day. It's the sun. Right. Maybe it just had to do with, if this thing is receiving some kind of signal from who knows where, maybe it's just a question of the clouds thwarting that signal. Right. And it doesn't have anything to do with the sun. It's just a coincidence. You don't know. It's like, it's a, hey, it's like the Matrix. They tried to uh, prevent the uh, machines. Well, that was solar energy, but they blotted the sky out. They blotted yes. the sun out to try and prevent that. And the, uh, like any good machine, it figures out a way around it. Yeah. But anyway, the Betts has also said it would occasionally vibrate at a low frequency. And again, this is going to my motor thing. Quote, as if a motor were running inside it. So there's something kind of maybe powering it, it seems like, at times. And they noticed a single, small, very magnetic spot on its surface. And we'll go into a a further examination later, but that's one of the things that they could do at home. And again, Antoine is a marine engineer, so he's got a few tools. Yeah, and he's also no stranger to unusual marine... Oh, yeah, industrial stuff. ...metallic industrial objects. Absolutely. That is also one of the theories that it's somehow it was supposed to be on a boat or a plane, that it is a piece of uh, industrial equipment. Nothing, though, that he could see looked familiar about it. Well, this is an interesting tidbit here we can talk about from the UFO publication Skylook. Skylook UFO magazine was the official monthly publication of MUFON, or the Mutual UFO Network, way back when. And there's a fun copy and reprints of that we've seen online here, dug up by the ARC. They reported that in a telephone interview with Mrs. Jerry Betts, MUFON director Walt Andrus 
was given more specifics on the sphere. So this is a preliminary update here on the actual measurements and dimensions of it. It was 7.96 inches in diameter, weighing exactly 21.34 pounds, and it was thought to have had a half-inch thick shell. Now, Mrs. Betts thought that there were three or four smaller spheres inside the ball which rattle around and, and move about when the ball is shaken. But she said there was no detectable seams to indicate a weld or a plug. The ball is magnetized and has north and south magnetic poles, which are about 150 degrees apart. Now, the reason I'm mentioning... That's the initial analysis. Well, that There's is... another pole analysis oh, oh, that conflicts. Yeah, no, that. no. This gets more in-depth and more exact as this thing's taken to the experts. And as we'll see, that's just to kind of give the audience here a more exact idea of what this thing actually is and looks like. And it's got kind of a polished, they said, metal surface, but there's no seams, there's no welds. Now, I did read one report where somebody thought that there was a hole that was drilled in or plugged that was welded shut and ground down and smoothed out. I saw that one place. Yes. But in general, people look at it, they can't see any entrance into this thing. Oh, and here's another good quote from Mrs. Betts. And this comes from the St. Petersburg Times and that AP UPI wire store from April 15th. Quote, once when a television crew was here, we placed our toy poodle next to it to indicate its size, she said. When the dog got next to the sphere, she began to whimper and cover her ears with her paws, something I've never seen her do before. That's where that uh, idea that the dog could hear something coming from it that humans could not. Yes. I didn't know previously that it was uh, during a television news interview or for right, that. So, right. Right. To give the cameras some, uh, the home viewers some perspective on how big it was, she places the dog next to it. And the dog is obviously getting, getting some vibes, not good ones off of this thing. So that was interesting. And then uh, from then on, Terry started to conduct his own experiments on the sphere. I mean, nothing real scientific, but you just went, at home. One might say experiment. <laughs> I don't think anyone would say that. Oh, nobody for you. say that. But okay. it's good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he would do just simple things. Like he would tap on it lightly with a hammer and it would give off a ringing sound. It kind of reminds me, and I don't know how they're made. I always thought these were kind of cool. You ever seen those exercise balls? They're, they're silver. Yes. And they have a ringing uh, yes. There's something about that. They, they chime. They chime. Yeah. And I don't know how those are made, but it's fascinating. Yeah. But here, it's a similar thing, but I think it's a prolonged ring. I don't know if those are for exercise. I thought those were for meditation. Yeah. Don't you remember the Kane Mutiny? Of and, course. Uh, Humphrey Bogart had the... Uh, the but this, he didn't the, have... Those didn't chime. Bearings. Those were just ball bearings. No, no. But he, I think he was doing it to exercise your hands. That was kind of the old yeah. thing. Right. Well, and, also, he was a paranoid nut. That's true. <laughs> By the way, Michael Caine took his name from the Caine Mutiny. Did really? you know that? I did not know. Yeah, I know that because I just watched him on uh, CBS Sunday Morning this past weekend. Well, he liked it that much, huh? No, he just needed a stage name, and it was a play, it was on the marquee, like across the street. <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, it's worked out very well. He said it was that well. or Michael 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, well, it's worked out well for him. No, that was the idea, though. I, I know the ones you're talking about. Uh, so the idea is that very polished steel spheres, that ring, can be made but usually nothing this size. So it's not like a commonly sold item in households, you know, right. you find in households. So it does some other strange things. Again, they're starting to do 
not real complicated scientific experiments at home, but just simple things you could do at home just to see what it would do. And we already talked about the rectangles and it's sort of zoning out the table or mapping out the table, almost like a Roomba trying to figure out where it can and can't go. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Somehow it could sense, it seemed like to them, again, there's no lip on the edge of the table, so it's not like it's bumping into a tiny corner or lip or edge on the coffee table, I don't believe. It's just getting to the edge of this glass coffee table. And to them, the purpose of the statement is that it seems to know where it is without them bumping it or guiding it. Right. And so then I'm pretty sure it was Terry decided, well, what happens? We know this table's level because I I know that I read that they brought a bubble level to the table to make sure that it was level. Right. And they concluded that it was. So the next thing they did was they tilted the table. And then they put the sphere on there to see what it would do. And lo and behold, it defied the law of gravity and rolled uphill on the table Mm -hmm. while it was tilted. You know, man, I wish that was on video back then. But it was uh, another interesting example, though, of this thing. And again, there's some themes that are kind of recurring here. Self-preservation, self-guided control or self-navigation somehow. But these are kind of tying in. So there's uh, an idea, though, that this vibration or frequency it's giving off, maybe it's receiving something, you know what I'm saying? So they're starting to think, doing all these experiments at home, that something is sending this thing signals, or it's generating signals, or it's communicating with something else. And either it's internal, like, you know, it's a self, uh, almost sentient kind of a thing in a rudimentary way, or it's receiving direction and guidance from something else. But they're getting the strong impression here, the whole family, that something is making this thing doing. It's not random. You know what I'm saying? It's not just a bunch of random weird motions. That would be one thing. But it seems to be under intelligent control by someone or something. And the other thing is that it wants to get away from you. It wants to avoid danger. Like I said, if you shook it vigorously, it then tried to get away from you when she set it on the ground or it vibrated and tried to roll away. So it tries to avoid danger or it's, so it's trying to preserve itself, which is another interesting aspect of self-control, self-guidance and preservation. And once again, with the Mexican jumping bean analogy, like the bean, the bean does that to get away from harm for self-preservation, to get out of the heat source. And so that's the image that's forming in her mind. Like this thing kind of wants to save itself from possible danger. Not like it can see you and it knows you're approaching and are going to shake it uh, you know, above your head vigorously and set it on the ground. It's just once you, you do that, then it knows to get away from you. So they got so concerned, the family, that the ball could roll around on its own under seemingly intelligent control, they started to worry that what's this thing going to do at night when we're all sleeping? So they started keeping it in a sealed duffel bag. Yeah. Uh, or just an, an old bag to keep it from getting away and maybe just exploring on its own in the house at night. And maybe they had reason to be concerned because other strange things were happening in the house. Things like poltergeist activity. Hi, I'm Lizzie. And when I'm not out hiking in the Oregon wilderness, hoping to see Sasquatch, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, this is interesting. And there was a whole other level of activity that surrounded the presence of this sphere in the house. And you would say that it's more than a coincidence, or is it, if you believe in paranormal activity in the first place? But whatever was happening in the home was happening at the time that the sphere was there. And 
this is going to sound familiar to you. There was doors opening and closing, slamming, and there was actually organ music. And here's here's what's yeah. fascinating about that. There's an article that was in the Jacksonville Journal in October of 1975, written by journalist Sandy Strickland. And uh, I want to read this quote from that article here. During the Betts family's occupation, the house contained an aura of mystery. One could hear organ music in the seven-level, 21-room mansion, but no organ was found in the house. Mysterious phone calls, voices and banging doors were heard in the house, and glass from closed cupboards would sometimes crash onto the floor. So Hmm. that, there's a lot of things about this. There's some common ground here. If you've been through our archives and you've heard the shows we've covered in the past, I used to joke about orbs, but this, you <laughs> now know. Now he takes them seriously. Well, I've seen some orbs in some videos that I think were striking yeah. to me, at least, yeah. especially at the Sally house. But the, yeah. the orbs that were described at Skinwalker Ranch that emitted light and flew around outside the house, which are different from this, you know, metal sphere. That's, it's not emitting light. No one's ever said that it has. Mm-hmm. But there was activity around those orbs in the presence of those at the Sherman Ranch mm-hmm. uh, when the Sherman family owned the Skinwalker Ranch property. Yeah. There was a lot of poltergeist activity for yeah. them to the oh. point where they bolted their cabinets shut. Yeah. This thing sounds like it could have been found at Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. It sounds like it's made for it because... It's got it, that trickster vibe well, again. there's a definite connection. You know, I'm not going to give away my final conclusions here, of course, but yeah. there's a definite connection to me as we've been researching this that between objects and stuff that's more, maybe you wouldn't even say UFO related or weird, strange, out of this world technology and something that's more supernatural, poltergeist activity, something that is like disembodied voices that were heard at Skinwalker. It's a perfect blend of that kind of weirdness. You know what I'm saying? It's not just bright lights and you got landing imprints uh, on the ground and maybe a burn circle here and there. You've also got disembodied voices. It just occurred to me, like at the Sherman Ranch story, that it sounded like there was a conversation in a weird language that's somewhat familiar, just not English, happening above your head, maybe about 10 feet. And it sounds like there's people up there, but you can't see anything. And then you shout out, hey, who's up there? What's going on? And they stop. And then they start mocking you. <laughs> like yeah. There's something weird about that. Not that the ball here was doing that, but there's definitely a connection between, let's say it is just a piece of industrial equipment that's gone astray or it's a part of a machine or it's actually functioning. Maybe it's got some kind of uh, battery control inside that's happening, but there's other weirdness associated with it. So either it's causing it directly or indirectly, but there does seem to be a connection that is more than just coincidence. If you believe the voices and the glass shattering and and the doors slamming open and close. I believe that the organ music was usually at night, which makes it even creepier. And it was kind of, it's been described as funerary. So that's creepy in itself, you know, kind of uh, a somber. Takata and Fugues, Bach. (laughs) 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 Something, I hope it's, well, that would make me laugh. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly that appeared. I always always remember that uh, from Circuit City commercials, God rest it. Oh, yes. They would play that for the big sale every year. Yeah, well, see, that's fun. Again, this didn't seem to scare the Betts family. Jerry said it's not scaring us per se, but we do really now want to find out what's happening with this thing and, and should we be cautious of it. And so, yeah, the other stuff that's happening was a little weird where that was not described in this big, rambling, beautiful house before. Yeah. So what do you do when you want to get help and uh, you just don't want to make 100 phone calls 
you take it to the media. Well, and that's what's interesting. You know, Sandy Strickland wrote that article, but before Sandy even went out there, the same newspaper, the Jacksonville Journal, which is a very respected paper to this day, the paper's names have changed over the years, but yeah, they sent out a photographer. His name was Lou Engler. He's since passed away, but he went out to photograph the story. And uh, when he arrived, he made it pretty clear that he was incredulous yeah, and yeah. she could sense his discomfort well, <laughs> because he was like, all right, what, show me the ball. Yeah, you know, and look, like, I'm sure, you know, in, a, in any paper, you get a lot of crackpots wanting you to come over and take a look at their, you know, the shaggy dog right. story. Well, and, and I had yeah. read that he was genuinely disarmed by her intelligence and forthrightness yeah. Yeah. and her just like. Yeah, and, she's not a crackpot. Right. Essentially, she said to him at the door, she just said, uh, you're not going to believe this if you don't see it. Yeah, so that was it, her quote. Basically. Yeah, that was yeah, her quote. Yeah, and this yeah. was April 12th, 1974. Yeah, I think it happened. Okay, so that must have happened, I think, on April 11th. Right, because that was the day it was published. Right. right? So he steps into the house, I guess, and she takes the sphere and uh, gives it to him, and I guess he puts it down on the floor, and she tells him to give it a push, and it rolls a few feet in front of him and stops. And he's just <laughs> like... All right, big deal. Yes, literally, so what? So what? Yeah. <laughs> and then she just said, this is the Spielberg moment. She mm. just looks at him and goes, just wait a minute. The ball then turned by itself and rolled to the right about four feet and then stopped, turned again, and rolled to the left about eight feet. Then it made a big arc and came right back to lose feet. Yeah. At that point, he realizes whoa, it's not following grooves in the floor. Somehow it's being controlled. Yeah. Imagine, you know, if, if there are stone grooves with grout or whatever there seems there. Again, we've all seen things follow a line. Unless there's a swirly groove, it's not making these kind of arcing motions and patterns and stuff. It usually follows uh, the brick pattern or a straight line or maybe makes a turn or bumps and stops. You know, we've all seen that playing around as kids. So it's definitely impressive to Lou Enger. And he's, again, he's a photojournalist there. He's seen a lot of stuff and it got his attention. Oh, by the way, have we been saying Enger or Egner? <laughs> it's Egner. Egler. No, no, Engler. no. It's Egner. E-G-N-E-R. I know right. this because we did manage to find his daughter, who's an author. We tried to reach out yeah. to her. We haven't heard back from her yet, but it's Lou Egner. If yeah. I said Inger oh, You first. know, that's also a good point because as you, if you decide to delve into this on your own, you'll see it misspelled here and there. This story has a remarkable number. <laughs> Variation of typos and typos. misinformation. There's all yeah. kinds of dates for when they first found it. There's everybody's name is wrong. There, yeah. There's a scientist involved. His name is either Willison or Williston or Wilson Willison. with 55 L's. Yeah. It's just that crazy. happens uh, as stuff gets passed around. But you know what? It's like going back to the Kincaid's cave story. It's Kincaid with a K or a C or A-D-A-I-D. It's just when you don't have the information at hand and you got to go to press or you're just writing your own stuff and putting it on the Internet you can uh, often just fill in with whatever you want. Or people just genuinely, honestly have a mistake. But we're going to catch you. Well, I don't know about that. Because <laughs> I don't know how many people are catching our mistakes left and right. But you just did. So good, yes. good on you for that. Yeah, yeah. So that was the experience that Lou had. And uh, of course, now once word is starting to get out, the press just goes crazy. And this is a, in a very short amount of time. And one of the things that we'd like to say about sort of the discrepancies with the discovery date is that in some of the stories that we've read, essentially, as we said at the top of the show, 
Terry brought it home, didn't really realize how weird it was, and it sat around for probably a week or two yeah, before he, he was playing his guitar and it started harmonizing r- with him. Right, so that's yeah. another interesting thing about it and this story. Generally, the consensus is it sat for at least a week, maybe two weeks, because it was just like a, an orb, <laughs> you know, something kind of cool you found in a junkyard or something, you brought it home, and it did nothing. It didn't do anything, didn't roll around. Well, then again, people weren't poking around with it. You know, they weren't rolling it on the floor too much. I think it just sat there on that window seat of his in his bedroom. And so maybe it had no cause to roll around or act like the way it did. So there's two ways to look at it. Either just sat there inert, and then he plays the guitar that those frequencies and musical tones somehow kind of woke it up or it activated it. Or that was the first stimulus that it could respond to, and it did, because nobody was rolling it around on the floor. But what's interesting is that the Lou Egner article here, when he gives his eyewitness testimony about it, he also confirms that it's totally smooth. There's only that little tiny mark that's about three millimeters long. That the triangle little, shape, little, right? Yeah, the little either it's a nick or it's a little actual purposeful mark, but it's an elongated triangle, and that's it. And there's no seams and. He doesn't say anything about a plug in it that's been welded and ground down. There's no markings on it. So he confirms now what Jerry Betts is saying. So once this happens, once the Jacksonville Journal posts a story, as we mentioned earlier, it gets picked up by the Associated Press, the AP, and the U- Wire, and UPI, United Press International. And the story goes global. It, it goes viral for 1974, you could say. Yeah, it was a lot harder <laughs> right. to do back then, by the way. No, it, it had to be sensational. And I want to make a note here about stories of these kinds back then. And a lot of you young kids weren't alive back then and don't remember it, but I can tell I was you five. That, was, that was the golden era of Bigfoot and UFO stories and people, we've talked about this before, the interest in it in the zeitgeist, goes up and down, depending on the tone and mood and uh, the feel of the people at the time, emotionally and, and sociologically. And the 70s was a good time. We came off with the crazy, wild uh, 60s and the peace and love movement and all that, and people were kind of opening up, so it's that generation and people were loosening up. The 50s had their own, of course, UFO and sci-fi craze, but it was seen as kind of corny and kind of fun and kitschy. There's certainly interest in that. Maybe that was kind of part of that generation. But this story, as we'll see later, might have a connection to World War II in being what it is and how it's described. But for right now, realize the times are good for this kind of story. That's the picture I was going to paint here is that the mid-70s, it's ripe. You had Bigfoot appearing on the $6 million man. You had computers and science and technological breakthroughs coming and NASA. So there was a lot happening in the 70s which we're going to roll into the 80s. And then, you know, it, it maybe kind of died down a little bit. We were, we were getting a lot of them. But so what I remember growing up, it's like, well, I could see why this thing went viral in its own way through the news wires and television media, because uh, it's just weird. We couldn't get enough of it then. What's really disappointing about this, we did look for any media of this, like on YouTube, but we couldn't find any news stories or interviews with these guys. It was you know, right on the cusp of when news was still being shot on film, I believe. Um, yeah, they were still doing that. It used yeah. to be like film at 11. <laughs> well, video, was, video, yeah, VNF was a film stock, video news footage. So yeah. it was basically shot on film on 16 millimeter. It was processed that evening or overnight. When they met film at 11, that's mean that same day done and, and yeah. showing for you on the air by 11. So you had a separate sound recording 
device, a recorder, uh, and then the uh, film camera. Yeah, but uh, in this case, movie camera would shoot sixteen. There's no anything. There's no interview. We couldn't we really find anything. find anything. And what I was thinking earlier, the reason for that is that one, you would think that news stations archive a lot of that stuff automatically. And from what I've learned personally in trying to find this news story about that only happened three or four years ago, that is not the case with a lot of these stations. We do know that the Betts family and the Sphere and all that, and maybe even some of its actions, were recorded by television news crews, also internationally too. There was, uh, I think, a, a TV crew from Japan, maybe, they're into that stuff, <laughs> that showed up and wanted to talk to the Betzes, at least by telephone or in person. And that had its problems of its own for the family. But at this moment, Jerry, wanting to get answers in the most efficient way, and this is pre-internet, of course, she contacts the local paper that gets the TV stations out there because that's going to get attention because she wants help with this. She wants to know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I would too, of course. And by the way, here's something else I want to say. The video, film, or news of this is not the only thing missing. The other thing that is gone, daddy, gone, mm. is the entire Betts family. You cannot oh. find them. And that is one of the things that you see when you do all the research here. No one has been able to track any of them down anywhere. And I'll tell you, just personally, having looked into it, we had a few leads and found some things here and there. But for the most part, they are ghosts when it yeah. comes to the Internet, which is a hard thing to do in this day and age, especially with a family that large. Well, so. that goes to the point I was making that all of this attention and some of it fun, some of it good, some of it beneficial and, and productive in trying to find this thing out, what it is, was, was helpful. And then there's a lot, of course, that is not so nice and negative. I'm Mr. Welch, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So Jerry and Terry have successfully managed to get this thing on the international stage. And, yeah, as best they could in back in them days. And, and try to figure out what it was. They wanted help to come in. And, and again, I want to remind everyone that Antoine, the uh, father in the family, was a marine engineer. Yeah. He didn't know what it was. There have been lots of people that suggested that it was some kind of float or some kind of, you know, had something to do with military defense. We did mention that Jacksonville Naval Air Station is close oh, by. Yeah, here's a good point. Antoine, being a marine engineer... During the middle of this, somewhere in the media frenzy and all the discovery, he is called out on a job. He's got to go back on ship. Oh, that's ship. right. He went to sea. So he's around all different kinds of stuff, including large marine machinery, valves and pipes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, he's a little more than just a layman here. He knows about this kind of industrial gear that's uh, right. on ships. And it didn't look familiar to him. But the other thing about it, the social part of it, is that he had to leave. So now it's just the wife. Jerry, and she's managing her businesses or whatever, and the 21-year-old son, he's studying for his pre-med uh, stuff, so he should be really busy, but this is all occupying his time now. Yeah, and there's other siblings, but he's the oldest at 21. All the rest mm -hmm. of them are younger yeah, kids. Uh, right. So, Wayne's 12, and uh, there's younger, a yeah. couple other younger so kids. So Jerry's on her own in terms of being yeah. the head of the household, which yeah. is she's obviously very good at. She's a real estate developer and yeah. a trucking company. Yeah, and she's also trying to work, too. Yeah, know, all but this going on. they're working on it together. I know that Terry was taking it on the road himself, which I guess we'll talk about here yeah. now. So what's next for in terms of the analysis of the sphere? Well, at least in the newspaper articles, Jerry then contacts the Navy because they're close by. Again, Jacksonville Naval Air Station is close by. And why not? It's been thought that this thing might be a piece of marine technology or marine machinery. 
Or it fell off a plane. It's most likely either industrial or military application for use in that arena, and why not send it to the Navy? So she rings them up somehow, and they get interested, and they agree to examine it. But it's not just the U.S. military. NASA was interested in the sphere. They had sent a representative, I believe, or, or made inquiries about it, and they had contacted the Betzes, as well as your other UFO investigation establishments. They all kind of chimed in and wanted to take a look at this thing and contacted Jerry. And the other thing I, I'll salute her for is that she's very forthcoming. Yes. A lot of people, it's like, you ain't looking at this thing, you know, and they're going to keep it locked up and no one can look at it. And it's just weird, but they still make the claims that this thing is out of this world, but we'll let you see it. Yes. And so that kind of frustrates me, but she's very forthcoming. It's just like, if you're accredited, I'll talk to you about it. Come take a look. By the way, we keep saying that the Naval Air Station or the Naval Complex is called, is about a 45 minute drive, 30 miles away to the Southwest. It's, so it's not that far, especially for aircraft. We just wanted to make it clear how close that was. Right, and also uh, independently, the US Marine Corps took an interest and they sent some representatives out and they contacted the Betzes and supposedly in a TV interview, one of the Marines from this, I think a three-man contingency here of uh, weapons experts, in the interview said that the ball did act strangely in front of him and that he couldn't explain its origin. And apparently the U.S. Marines issued an official public press release stating that the sphere was not the property of the U.S. government. Other people that contacted them, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, also contacted the Betzes. It was considered one of the more respected civilian-based operations for that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, they're serious about gathering the data and checking into stuff and publishing the results and making it uh, accessible to everybody, at least the summaries. But also somebody else that we've talked about quite a bit, he's a rock star, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Close Encounters of Third Kind fame. Actually, you know what, he, what he's... Uh, being well, that's for... not really his fame. That was a cameo. <laughs> I mean, that's no, like saying... Truffaut's big thing was uh, Close Encounters. No, but also the classification system. Yeah, so that's kind of his baby. But you know where he's being portrayed? Oh, you, I'm such an idiot. You were talking about the actual classification system, not the movie. I'm, well, the, both. I'm the moron. Well, but <laughs> actually, both. Don't I'm going to own it. Don't, be, don't, don't beat yourself up. Yeah, but I, but no. the dunce cap on. <laughs> but he is in the movie. Yeah, that's how we get the name is that uh, he came up with that, I think. Same, now I'm talking out of school. I don't know. Top <laughs> top he is a respected authority on this. And he is out of Northwestern University in Chicago. And guess where he's being currently, very currently, portrayed on the television medium. I know. I already know the answer. Oh, you do? That's oh. not fair. <laughs> okay, no. He's, he is on uh, Project Blue Book on the History Channel. Yes. Yeah. You My know, mom texted me. She was like, have you seen that? Did you know that was happening? Yeah. Like, no, that mom, was a couple, couple of nights ago. Um, <laughs> our friend of the show, Kat Wells, her husband, Alec, works on that. Oh, cool. Yeah, here in LA somewhere. So yeah, we have definitely reasons to see it. But he's being portrayed by the actor Aiden Gillen. I think, and who was also in Game of Thrones. I think if you're a fan of that show, you'll recognize him, but he's playing Dr. J. Nice. But anyway, what's cool is that Dr. J here gets an uh, interest in the sphere. He wants to examine it, and uh, he's, again, a good guy to give it to. So he hears of the sphere, and he asks the Betts to send it to him at his office at Northwestern University in Chicago. But Jerry Betts, this is kind of interesting, she has been warned by, I don't know, consultant somebody that shipping the sphere to Hynek could expose it to, quote, interception, substitution, loss, or being misplaced or seized. So she declines. 
Now, some of those words in there were kind of interesting. I hope you picked up on them. Yeah. Replaced. It, yeah. Yeah, here's your sphere back. Like, well, just, it's the same thing. It's the same one. Just go on about your business. Well, where's the original? Like, you don't need to know. I'll save it for part two. My yeah. thoughts on that. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah. we do have a section for that. Uh, under yeah. Theories and conspiracy-esque yeah. theories. But it's interesting that uh, somebody warned her because it's like, well, I don't know if she knew much about him, but... He's a trusted figure, but somewhere along the line, somebody could step in, especially now that everybody knows about this thing. So uh, in Rob Morphy's article here, uh, and this is according to a report published in the April 16th, 1974 edition of News Sentinel, quote, she, Jerry Betts, said that experts she had talked to at Northwestern University decides that it would be, quote, too much risk, unquote, to fly the sphere to Chicago for examination. So even Dr. J. Allen Hynek and people at Northwestern and whoever's consulting on the side with Jerry say, I don't know if I would let this out of your sight. There are too many places in between where it could get intercepted. Now, what's different here is that it goes to the military and they do examine it. So that's the next step here. And by April 12th, the Betzes had decided that they'd had enough strange behavior from the ball at their house. And they wanted to get to the bottom of this. They wanted to be analyzed by the Navy. This is according to the St. Petersburg Times article from the 12th. The article quotes her as saying, quote, I told them we expect a comprehensive report in two weeks. And if it can't be identified as government property, it is to be returned to us, unquote. That's what Mrs. Betts said Thursday while waiting for the Navy representatives to arrive. So again, she's pretty firm with her terms here. It's like, well, here's two weeks. Find out what you can. If you say it's government property, we'll hand it over. Well, we'll just hang and this on to is it. what I love about her. And even this quote from her, she is a real tour de force because oh, yeah, yeah. plenty of people have handed over. And we know this. This is what we do. We research this stuff. <laughs> we investigate this stuff. Yeah. Plenty of people have handed stuff over in these scenarios. Oh, and, you mean like the gentleman who uh, handed over uh, Amelia Earhart's flight case? Yeah. <laughs> and you don't get it back and you don't no. know where it went. Yeah. And they don't even care about explaining it to you. But no. it seems like she might have had a commanding presence. You know, she's no, like, no, she was here's just, what's going to happen. Yeah, she you was, get it for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And if it ain't yours, you better give it back to me. Right. And I can see them going, okay. Well, you know? it's all, it's, well now it's all in the, in <laughs> the news. We're the Navy, but okay. That's what's smart is that now this is in print. So yeah. they're on the record. Um, but I mean, when it comes to a ball... How easy would it be to replace it? I mean, it's well, they, again, but I guess they would have to like. They obviously are intimately familiar with it. Yeah, the little triangle mark and all that. It might have even occurred to her. I mean, she knows how to fix a diesel truck, right? So <laughs> she's probably yeah. like, "There's no way these guys can make a duplicate of this in two weeks." Yeah. But it's enough time for them to check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I, no, no, it's... I'll know it if it's different. Yeah, you don't want it. That's what I'm wanting to believe anyway. Yeah, you don't want it languishing there too long. They're gonna, it's going to end up in the warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's also going to be uh, thoroughly examined by experts or somebody in the military there that knows what they're doing. They have the machinery to look at this kind of stuff too. And also, because people are saying this looks like it might be military and especially naval, that they're the, the best ones to check this out. So that's what happens. And ending the article, uh, you know, she was asked about the contention of some neighbors who suggested that the sphere may be a bugging device left by an unidentified flying object. And Mrs. Betts said, quote, if no other explanation can be found, that's as logical as any, <laughs> unquote. People are, again, they're joking around. That's why I was saying, like, this is the era of a lot of UFO talk. And it's like, well, what if that thing's like, that's a giant microphone. It just rolls around on its own. It's listening to our conversations. Well, this is one of the things that I honestly can't believe it. The Astonishing Research Corps has come 
such a long way. You know, it started out with volunteers who were like-minded like us, uh, same level of experience or better. Now it is filled with high-level experts from every field. It's pretty amazing Mm -hmm. to me. And uh, we do have some in there that are extremely knowledgeable about the military and intelligence and that sort of thing. And one of our members had suggested that the Jacksonville Naval Air Station they kind of doubted that it had any kind of testing facilities at all because they were familiar <laughs> with what that station was yeah, and what curious. would be there. Right. So they were saying, I don't think they could have conducted any of these right. tests there. Yes, this person has a military experience at some of those bases there. And I think what this person was saying was that when it comes to research, for the Navy anyway, most of that's handled in D.C., that there will be EOD, or Explosive Ordnance Disposal Units, and units that are trained to look at... Right, and you're going to have those, according to this person, anywhere you have a base that has explosives. Right, any place that carries and uh, transports, contains munitions, you're going to have a team there that's trained to handle them and can spot. But that's different from an analytical lab situation. Well, yeah, yeah. But that happens anyway, as we'll see. And it's all on record. There's a report. We can't find it. Supposedly, but but it was all in the the media. (laughs) We found summaries of it. Yeah, we found... uh, excerpts from it. We don't have military access. We're not privy to that stuff. But uh, apparently, Navy metallurgists did perform tests on it and fairly comprehensively as much as they could to a point that was determined by Mrs. Betts how far they would go. But here are some interesting things now that we're getting into the nitty gritty of, of what this ball actually is and its dimensions and descriptions. So the first interesting thing was the Navy reports that they tried to x-ray it But their initial machine, the X-ray machine, was not powerful enough to penetrate the sphere. Not a big deal, but there is one Navy spokesman, CPO, Chief Petty Officer Chris Berninger, and he was kind of the liaison, or I don't know if he was on the team examining this thing, but he's the spokesman relaying these details about the sphere. So, quote, our first X-ray attempts got us nowhere. We're going to use a more powerful machine on it and also run spectrograph tests to determine what metal it's made of there's certainly something odd about it, unquote. So he's not saying it's just a ball, we got to take a look at it. There is something weird about it, not terribly, but he doesn't know yet what that is. So here's what the Navy metallurgists found. The sphere is exactly 7.96 inches in diameter, or converted, that is 202.184 millimeters. And what I wondered here is, does the fact that it's not an even rounded number here make any difference? Because one theory is that it might be what they call a pig, is a ball that's rolled through a large pipe to clear it. Yes. Using gravity. Is it just a tool that works on another piece of machinery? That's a possibility too. That's a part of something else. So maybe it wouldn't be, you know, why would you make a a ball? Just make it eight inches. (laughs) A bowling ball. Make it eight and a half inches. Something standard we can wrap our heads around, even in the metric system. Something even. So that's not a big deal, but it's kind of curious. And it weighs... 21.34 pounds, or 9.6797 kilograms. So they're getting more exact measurements on this thing. The ball is hollow, and it has a shell that they guess is approximately a half inch thick. And I think they can tell this through ultrasound. Is that, Scott, was that your finding too? Yeah, it was ultrasound, and they said that they were calculating it within one-tenth of an inch in terms of width. They had calculated that it was a half inch thick. I see, I see. Now, here's something interesting. It was determined that the orb could withstand a pressure of 120,000 pounds per square inch. Now, I don't know anything about metallurgy, so (laughs) that's good. What this is shaping up to be is that it's a pretty high-grade piece of metal ball here. Now, as an aside, uh, I don't know if you saw that trend on the internet 
I think about a year ago. Did you know that you could take a wad of aluminum foil and pound it and keep pounding it and I believe pounding it and pounding it and it will end up as a metal ball? Nuh-uh. Yeah. That's really? A, that's a thing on the internet. Yeah. A uh. smooth, round metal ball. Yeah. The only thing his conclusion was, you don't want to, yeah, you can do it. You don't want to. Yeah. At the core of this metal ball that he made by pounding it out, and it was about the size of a racquetball, yeah. is a large uh, dollop of barbecue sauce because he was using the foil from uh, from barbecuing. Oh. But this is not the case here. This thing's been machined. Yeah. Somehow it's been machined. It's not naturally occurring. And it's also hollow. It is hollow. You can't but, pound uh, a hollow ball of aluminum foil, I'll tell you that. No, there's not, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no marks. That's another thing that people are looking for. Are there any seams, openings, markings, drillings? Well, we can't think that, that plug that, that we talked about earlier, that's only described in one account of uh, all the stuff we've come across, right? Yeah, I think I saw it once and I made a note of it, but I haven't seen it anywhere else. But here's why people think that that's a good theory is that, as Mrs. Betts said, when you shake it, you can hear little things rattling around. Yes. That was her impression. She's got a pretty good sense of intuition, as we'll learn. She thought that there was three, maybe four smaller balls inside. Something rattles around in it. Yeah. And those were kind of under some kind of motion. She said something's moving around inside. One of the most important things here, too, is that they were able to ascertain what it was made of. And they determined it is a man-made alloy. It is stainless steel grade 431. And that's yeah. a magnetic nickel-bearing stainless steel that is designed for heat treatment to the highest mechanical properties and corrosion resistance. It's pretty easy to look up. There's a website that we went to called azomaterials, A-Z-O-M.com. Mm -hmm. Grade 431 stainless steels are martensitic, heat-treatable grades with excellent corrosion resistance, torque strength, high toughness, and tensile properties. All these properties make them ideal for bolt and shaft applications. Yeah, high-stress applications. Yeah, yeah. These steels, however, cannot be cold-worked owing to their high yield strength. Hence, they are suitable for operations such as spinning, deep drawing, bending, or cold heading. Hmm. Fabrication of martensitic steels is generally carried out using techniques that allow hardening and tempering treatments and poor weldability. The corrosion resistance properties of grade 431 steels are lower than that of austenitic grades. I don't know what that means. The operations of grade 431 are limited by their loss of strength at high temperatures due to over-tempering and loss of ductility at negative temperatures. Mm. So it's a high-grade alloy that certainly could be man-made. And it is commonly used in industrial applications. But here's my side thought on this. If you think that's a letdown, like, oh, man, I was hoping it was made. The material's unknown. Yeah. Or whatever metal rods that Mr. Bigelow has found on the ranch. Yes. Of unknown origin. It goes off the periodic table of elements chart into the 140s, 150s, 200s. Yeah, that's the climactic conclusion. It's like... We don't know how this is made. It's not from Earth. It's crazy. But think about it. If you're going to go the crazy alien route here and say, it's the same thing my tinfoil hat's made out of. This stuff is, it's alien made. You want to believe that. Well, why wouldn't an alien culture be able to make stainless steel in a very high grade form? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't rule, rule it out. out. It doesn't rule it out. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. And maybe stainless steel in a high grade works for them too in this application, whatever it is, rolling around in someone's living room. So that's the idea there, though. Is like It might sound like a letdown, but it's still mysterious. That is one thing I wanted to emphasize throughout all of these quotes and people looking at it, is that there are varying opinions, not widely varying opinions of what this is, but everybody, almost to a T, says this thing's weird. It's pretty weird. Here's what's interesting about this. According to that Jacksonville article, 
Inside the sphere, tiny beads of residue roll around and make noise, according to Chief Petty Officer Chris Berenger from the Navy. I don't know who manufactured it, but I say it came from Earth, he said. We do know it is not an explosive and presents no hazard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I was curious how they figured that out. One thing that I heard again from uh, one of our members in the ARC was that they would have detected explosive residue if there was any mm-hmm. on the exterior of it. But I always wonder about that. I mean, I know now, like it's like at the TSA and you go through and mm-hmm. if I go through, I always have to, we have a little dog that we travel with. She's come out of the carrier so the carrier yeah. and her leash can go through the x-ray. If I walk through, I have to hold her and yeah. go through the magnet. Right. And <laughs> Whenever right. I do that, they always swab my mm-hmm. hands. Yeah. That's modern equipment. I wonder mm-hmm. how, if they could detect explosive residue on something that was manufactured that long ago, if it was then treated externally in a sterile environment or something, it's it's fascinating to me. But I mean, beyond x-raying yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, and, and we'll talk about that. But Well, I think chemical spectrograph is one way you, you can see where it's spiking, you know, uh, and certain chemicals are there that you could probably maybe see a yeah, pattern. Yeah, right, right. You know, I couldn't so... be talking more about something I know less about. <laughs> me, me neither, but that doesn't stop us. <laughs> Here's the point, I believe, about the Navy's point of view with this, at least outwardly, is that same thing with the Marines. They need to know, is this ordinance? Is this a hazard to the public? Could this be explosive? Did it fall off of some military equipment and they need to recover it or render it inert? So that's their first concern, because basically that is, they are charged with, you know, anything military they got to take care of. They can't just leave it, you know, just throw it in the trash. They need to see if it does pose a threat, and if it does, neutralize it or determine what that is. So they're kind of saying, as far as we can tell, there's no threat here. It's not radioactive, as far as they know. It is not explosive. It's not a hazard, etc. However, CPO Berninger did admit that the ball rolled on its own while seeing it at the Bet's home, saying, quote, I believe it's because of the construction of the house, he said. It's old and has uneven stone floors. The ball is almost perfectly balanced, and it takes just a little indentation to make it move or change direction, unquote. So he did see it move. He thought it was weird, but he's going with the fact that it's just kind of following the grooves on the floor. And I don't believe he was... How it doesn't account for the table, the, though, does well, it? Well, I don't know. Again, you, you don't know what demonstrations are being presented to each of these groups. I certainly would. I'd pull out all the stops, but we just don't know. Those details aren't in any articles that I can see as of yet or any report that we could not get a hold of. But maybe it's one of those things also, they're getting Michigan J frogged. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Hello, my baby. Hello, my dolly. You know, the, the point <laughs> being is that it does all these crazy things when you're home alone or with the family. You bring people over and it doesn't do them. Much as you take your car to the mechanic because it's making a knocking noise, you get you make an appointment, you get there, it doesn't make the noise. Yeah. You drive home, it's making the noise again. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's no, it happens all the time. So <laughs> what was strange here, at least what was admitted by CPO Berninger, was that it does seem to explain display some odd behaviors, but it does seem man-made. And so, as we'll see here, no one's really jumping right to the alien answer on this, but they can't clear it as being like, well, this doesn't do anything. It's just a ball. Just roll onto the floor and follows the grooves. That's it. You know, it's just metal. There's something weird about it. There's something weird inside. Now, here's what's also interesting to me their conclusions because they were interested enough, the Navy, that they wanted to cut into it. However, Jerry Betts then says in the article that any further testing by the Navy would require recutting, and she says no, because they're going to destroy it. 
also, I think people are saying, if you do that, you may not know what it's going to unleash. And she may have started to Why wonder about that. Why did she want to be the custodian of that? I mean, did she think... I, th I think I would say that the vibe that I'm getting here from the tone of her quotes is that they're just going to destroy it, you know, right. the value of it, and ruin any special properties it might have. You know, it's not like some of the other performing things we've seen before. Certainly people are showing up and want to see it, but these are very private people also. That's why I wanted to state that. They move to the area in that spot to be a little more secluded and just have the friends over that they wanted, not the entire world media back in the 70s. So, you know, I think it's out of a matter of them wanting to also preserve this thing and not have a Navy punch a hole and be like, well, there you go. Hey, you know, it was nothing. There's sand inside. Sorry, here's your ruined ball. Yeah. But now you can put on a, <laughs> you can put on a stand now because there's a hole in it. <laughs> so uh, here's a question to you I wanted to ask you. If it were your ball, would you allow it to be cut open? My first reaction to that question is going to be an immediate no. Um, I'll leave it we at that. We are talking about the sphere. Yeah, I, no, I, um, you know, I don't know. I guess it would ha depend on what I would believe about yeah. what it was and what might be inside it. Right. See, I'm not sure what I would do in this yeah, circumstance, I thought it was a, especially I, like it would depend on my frame of mind, which has changed significantly in the past couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure. I might not be keen on it. I thought it was a good question. To because, use an old-timey uh, word. Yeah. Why am I doing this show? I have an intense, burning curiosity. And uh, I, like Jerry and Terry, I, I want to know, I want to get to the bottom of it. I've often ruined a lot of <laughs> objects, trying to take them apart. And I work them until they break because See, this, I want to know how they work. This ties directly in with your whole thing where you almost seem to get joy out of spoiling movies with me. No, no, no. That's just Yeah, you. no. You just want to <laughs> tell the ending. Spoiler alert. That's no. I'm going to get you a t-shirt that says that. In this case, for myself, as far as wanting to proceed further... It also depends, as we'll see here, the parameters of this thing by different people. And some of it's kind of way out there, I know. But if you own this thing and you saw it do what it does and you heard it play the organ creepily at night or whatever it's doing, and then people in the know saying like, I don't know if I would cut into this thing. This thing is special. We don't know who made it. No one's fessing up to that, which is interesting. Yeah. You know, no one's, uh, I mean, some people have No, no said one's ever. It, it might be this or yeah. it might be that, but, yeah. but they didn't come out and say like, oh, that's ours. Give it back. Yeah. So no one's claiming this thing. And someone says to you, um... Yeah, if you do that, there could be some repercussions to you and your family. It's like, well, I don't know about that. I don't yeah. Know. I guess going back to what you're saying, depending on how you felt about it, as an heirloom or keepsake with the family, maybe my feelings would change and I wouldn't want it destroyed. If I were not really attached to it, then go ahead, poke a hole in it. I'm going to be in another state. Yeah. When you do that, <laughs> I will be 100 miles away at least, or whatever the blast radius of something weird like that could be, or something that's uh, Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say, if it. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and okay this, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take it out to Area 51 <laughs> for the test. <laughs> right. I'll be mm. over here at Mount Cornelia or whatever yeah, yeah. in uh, Jacksonville. You, you, you wanted it uh, Trinity Range there. Yeah. The first nuclear device was tested. Yeah. Just in case, do it robotically. They sent Marines over there. The Marines right? came yeah. after the Navy. And with Jerry Betts, she was smart to go to the media, or at least it's in print that she's giving it to the Navy. It's all on record of sorts, a public record, at least for the, for the video part we can't find. But the point is that it's been put out there by her. It's like, look, we've given it to the Navy. 
people are paying attention to this story. In two weeks, we're going to have an answer for them, or at least whatever they can find out. And then we're going to get some answers or something, and they have to give it back if it's not theirs. But her point was that, yeah, if it's yours, just say it's yours. Like, oh, you know what? This does uh, belong to the United States Navy. It's a ball valve off a destroyer, and uh, we need it back. So thank you very much for finding it. We don't know how it got in your backyard. But they don't. That would have been the easiest solution, I think, if it were non-classified technology of some kind, just a, a part off of a ship, they'd want it back. And it's easy to say, like, no, you're right. You know, we, we asked around and that little triangle stamp that means it's off of this type of ship or we use this, uh, we'll just take it back from you. And that's the end of the story. Like, oh, there you go. Yeah, it does act weird. Yeah, the guys in the shop will tell you. Sometimes it rolls around kind of weird on the floor. Yeah. But they don't. They give it back to her. And they're like, well, it's not ours. Good luck with it. We can't continue because you won't let us cut into it, which is the next step. But they take an interest in it. I mean, one, as we said before, yeah, they have to check it out to make sure it's not live ordinance. It's not explosive or a threat to the public. They do that. That's their conclusion. But also, like I said, if it were sensitive at all, they could just take it. The other theory that you're tripping on here is that some conspiracy theorists would entertain the idea that the sphere had been duplicated and a replacement given back to the Betzes. And there's some consultants that have indicated that that might be a possibility to them, is that you're not getting back your sphere, but that also settles the case. Like, yeah. they get the real one, it does weird stuff, it's from outer space, the key component to an alien battle that they're trying to win. Right. But you get back this uh, metal ball they made. Yeah. shop then that settles the idea or you know my point is like you don't even have to do that you can just say like yeah it's ours we're taking it we found out who it belongs to and you don't have to explain it it's government not terribly classified but it's like well you don't need to know that but the Betzes thought they may have had something of value and although they didn't really need the money they weren't in any financial difficulty but i think like most of us they'd want to hang on to it it's something unusual. They've seen it do weird things and they want to capitalize on keeping the value of that within their possession, you know, and eventually see where this thing would go as far as research. What is it? And if it was valuable, of course, most of us would want to reap some reward from it for the, the time, the trouble it's causing you. They just really want to know what it is and why it was behaving so strangely. So one last quote here regarding this episode of giving it over to the Navy comes from the St. Petersburg Times, St. Petersburg, Florida, April 15th, 1974. And of course, they caught this story, compiled the story from the, the API and UPI newswires. The only reason we're stating that is that some of them are taking the story and running with it, even though they didn't go investigate it initially. Right. They're just kind of repeating it. Early internet tactics here and <laughs> people just repeating stuff. Okay. Uh, but Mrs. Jerry Betts had a quote in there saying in this article, quote, maybe we've just become overattached to it, but the ball is odd. And even the Navy called it a Mexican jumping bean, Mrs. Betts said Sunday. Back to the bean. <laughs> but who could say what's on another planet? Even speculations have been proven wrong. The Navy says what it isn't. They say it isn't an explosive. So we still want to know what it is. And the article goes on to say that Sunday, so I guess that would be April 14th, 1974, she was going to send it, the sphere to, via jet, via plane, to Dr. J. Allen Hynek. But we now know that she was advised against it and never did. So what's interesting, I think, in this article is that she said she was going to do it, and then somehow she changed her mind or somebody changed it for her. And in that exchange, people at Northwestern said, yeah, maybe that's not such a good idea. All right, well, that's bringing us to the close here of uh, part one of our series on the Bet Sphere. 
this story is, it gets more and more fascinating as you go on. I mean, yes, it is just a ball, but <laughs> well, yeah. it's surprising. And the more you dig into all the people that had encounters with it or examined it and you hear these quotes, you realize there's something more to it. Even the skeptical guys like, oh, well, yeah, it rolled around. It was kind of weird, but you know, the floors are uneven at that old house. Yeah. So it, it demonstrated these strange characteristics. Everyone seems to be saying, no, there was something unusual about this from uh, photographer Lou Egner yeah, for yeah. Sandy Strickland, who wrote that article for CPO Jacksonville Berninger. Times. Yeah, yeah. They don't give it, let's say, a clean bill of health, totally. It's like no one's jumping to the extraterrestrial option here, or it's alien, or it's got a little man inside, a la Men in Black. Yes. <laughs> There's nobody inside operating it. And our good friend, uh, Carl Strachan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> there, there are little objects in there, which we will try and explain further, uh, but... Again, it's a little odd to people. No one's saying, it's like, well, this is nothing, you know, and they're making it up. Yeah. Everybody who's come in contact with it, who examines it, says, well, it's not that weird, but there are some really unexplainable things about it that we just don't know. You know, for any metal ball, look, a metal ball is not that complicated. If there's <laughs> something inside, to me, again, the most complicated ones are those, the meditation ones that make the chiming things. Like, I don't know how they make those. Yeah. But it's not uh, that way out there. But this thing for what it is and nobody knowing what it is, it's interesting. And it's interesting to me that the military, again, other than just taking it and comparing it to other stuff, asking, examining it, putting the call out there through the branches, that one, after determining that nobody knew what it was and it wasn't military, that they'd still want to keep looking at it. Yes. That there was interest in it, other than it being, again, it, it's not explosive, it's not radioactive, it's not something we need to control, but they are curious about it. So that's interesting. You know, so then I wondered, was it being observed by the shadow government, higher ups in some kind of military, Project Blue Book kind of thing? I think it had ended by then, but just wondering let's just keep an eye on this thing where people watching it because again, uh, people were coming out of the woodwork wanting to take a look at it and disturbing the Betzes. You know, maybe the military just said, well, wait till it does something much weirder, but we've taken a look at it, measured it, you know, as much as we can and uh, we'll just give it back. But I do, I do wonder what other branches were kind of keeping their ear to the rail, as we say. You know, I don't, usually count myself among conspiracy theorists, but I do wonder, the Navy had it for two weeks. There was an opportunity for a swap there. Yeah, yeah. Of course, though, being able to conclude whether or not that happened would be predicated on what happened to it after that, which right. is something that we're going to talk about in part two, along with a lot of other fascinating things, because there is so much more to this story. There are other similar stories of spheres, not exactly like this, but yeah. spheres that have come down from around the world. I'm going to try to give you some more specific information from the Naval Report. Right. We want to talk a little bit more about Jerry Betts, who's a really amazing person. Here's the curveball here. It turns out that house that they lived in at the time mm -hmm. had its own reputation. So there's something going on. There's a whole parallel thing happening with the house that the Betts family lived in. It's another mystery of sorts, or a mysterious house on a piece of interesting and mysterious land. So there's that. But the ball continues to be, for at least a little while, to be examined by others. And they have even more, let's say, outrageous conclusions and far-reaching possibilities of the potential, let's say. Because there are other institutions, panels, people, individuals who are looking at this sphere 
with, shall we say, much more dramatic and outrageous conclusions about it, which aren't just two simple parlor tricks. These range from this could be something that is not from this planet, and it could be something that could destroy this planet. So that's a broad overview of the Betsphere story. But as you know, this is Astonishing Legends, and we're just getting started. In the course of their research for this episode, the Astonishing Research Corps did something that, as far as we can tell, no one has done in a long, long time. They managed to find a member of the Betts family who was there for all of it. When we recorded tonight's show, we hadn't heard anything back from this person. But that has changed, and we've since secured an interview that is going to blow the doors off this case, putting to rest the endless string of repeated misinformation and bringing new things to light that no one has ever heard before. We hope you'll join us next week for part two. That's going to wrap up tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with part two of our series on the Bet Sphere. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Anna Martinez. Hi, I'm Lizzie. Hi, I'm Mr. Welch. And I give my permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice to use my voice however they see fit. I understand galaxy-wide present perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.